Welcome. Glad that you're here this weekend. If you want to go ahead and grab your notes, uh, we will jump into this. There's a few little places for filling the blanks. So if you want to get a pen or a pencil, or if you just do it online, that's great too. Or uh, ultimately, if you just learn best by listening, however you're most comfortable, uh, do it that way right there. I want to welcome all of our campuses. Uh, we are one church, but we have multiple locations. All of our visitors, all of our friends, however you attend JFC, uh, we're glad that you're doing it. The series is called In the Meantime, and uh, Josh, you just heard him talk about its, uh, its title. It simply means, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? And that doesn't mean, what do you do when you don't know what to do? That's not what I'm teaching. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? In other words, a decision uh, you made or that someone else made simply has put you in a position where you can't change it. Maybe it looks like this. Maybe it has something to do with your marriage. Sometimes we can find ourselves in a position in marriage. Maybe it's even a long-term marriage where you just simply, it's not what you wanted it to be. It's not going the way that you wanted it to go. And if you're really honest with yourself and you look at the future, you don't see it changing anytime soon. But you don't want to cut and run. You don't want to throw in the towel. You don't want to quit. So maybe you find yourself in that place right now. What do you do when you simply can't do anything about it? Maybe it's finances. Maybe you're in a position financially where it's just not, uh, it's not working out like you had hoped it was going to work out. Maybe all your dreams didn't come true. Maybe it was a reversal in a business. Maybe it was just something that didn't work out the way that you wanted it to. And when you look at it over the next few years of your life, you can't see how to flip a switch to change it. So what does that person do right there? Maybe you don't want to go bankrupt. Maybe you don't want to, to just simply walk away from everything. Maybe you're like, I'm going to finish the course. What do you do? I'm trying to talk to that person right there. Uh, maybe it is something with a child. Uh, maybe as they've grown and become adults, maybe they've picked and gone in directions that is not what your dream was for them. It's not the lifestyle. It's not the, the desire of your heart. But you find yourself in a situation where when you look at it, you don't see any quick way to change it, but you love your kid and you want to keep a relationship. So what does that person do in that situation? Right? Does it make sense? We can find ourselves in many places like this in life at times. And I know when I say this, listen, it's a series where I realize some people, as they hear it, it's going to hit them right where they're at right now. So they're like, oh, this is great. Some are like, where were you three years ago when I was in crisis? And of course, some right now are having the best days of their life. And this seems very far away from them. So perhaps to the last one, here's what I would say. Save the notes. You never know. You just never know. Uh, by the way, too, I know it's a message that's not a rah-rah message. I've done this a long time. It's 30 years that I've been a pastor. Actually, going into the 31st year as a pastor. That's a long time to do anything. You agree? So I know when I teach. I know the stuff that's rah-rah, and I know the stuff that's, like, good for us, and we just need to eat our vegetables. That's what this is. Okay? Not broccoli. You like broccoli? Of course, there's always a few. Brussels sprouts. There we go. It's not Brussels, okay? It's not Brussels sprouts, but it's lettuce, so it's got to be done. It's good for you. So just as we teach and as we go through it, realize this. We're teaching anything that you're just simply, man, I need something that's a little more, I just want to rah-rah. Hang on. You know me, and you know that we do different series, and we do it for that reason right there. I know people live in different places at different times. And we're trying to come from all sides when we're speaking to people. All right, where we'll go uh, this weekend, simply, uh, I, I want to talk uh, and, and remind you, um, when it comes down to these things, I'm looking at specific things that maybe a person finds themselves in. So at the transition point in your notes, here's what I titled it this week. And, and here's the truth. Uh, after I sent my notes in, after they printed the notes, after they get everything ready, then I look at that, what my sentence right here, and I'm like, I could have said that better. And I thought of four different ways to say it better. 
but it was already printed, and I didn't want all the admins to have to rip everything up, and I want them to keep working for us over the long period of time. So here's what I called it in the notes. What do you do when you've really messed up? Funny, when I was studying, I couldn't think of a better way to say it. I came up with a better way to say it. What if you've had an epic fail? What if you've done something that you simply can't undo? What if you've gone to a place where you really wish you hadn't gone? What if you committed something or entered into something or found yourself in a situation where it's a bad mess up, man? Maybe it was something that, um, a betrayal. I think when I wrote this, I realized that I was going to speak probably to a minority for the weekend. But I would think it would be a critical message to hear if you found yourself in the minority where you felt like I messed up so bad and I've got no future left. Does God care for that person too? So again, maybe it's just not for everybody right now, but maybe at some point it could be useful and maybe... Maybe it could keep you from ever going there in the first place. So I'm going to talk about Peter this weekend. Uh, what I'm doing is looking in the New Testament for people who find themselves in situations where simply there was nothing they could do about it. They had to walk through it, and that's just the way that it was. And I think Peter is a, a disciple that we can look at and say, uh, here's a person who, who really committed a betrayal, did something that he never thought he would do. In fact, he said just the opposite. And I think his life, for the most part, said the opposite of how he ended up in a betrayal. But nonetheless, he found himself in the betrayal. And how do you get restored? How do you come back from it? How do you put your life back together? How do you, how do you move forward once there's been something that's just so traumatic that it's, it could like scar you for the rest of your life? You could be known by it, known from it. And I guess Peter probably is the example of a person who's known for a lot of really good things, but he's known for a really critical mistake in his life, and it was the betrayal uh, of Jesus, not Judas, but his denial of Christ, his his, his denying that he ever knew him, that it was ever his friend, that it was his Lord. It was a critical mistake in his life. So I just titled it, What Do You Do When You Really Messed Up? And Can We Find Anyone in the New Testament? And I think that Peter represents that. Again, it's an extreme example. It's an extreme message, though, and maybe it's just really important for someone to hear this. So talk about Jesus and Peter. Let me talk a little bit about Peter's story, and then I'll talk about what Peter did right. Not what he did wrong, but what he did right. So Peter's story, everyone knows it. Jesus finds Peter. He's a fisherman. And he's actually fishing when Jesus finds him. It's an amazing story. Here in my mind, when I think of a person following Christ, what gives authenticity to this story of the power of Jesus, if you can get a man to quit fishing. <laughs> For you fishermen, you know something significant happened in this situation. I just think to myself, here, here Jesus walks up to the guy doing something that had to be a pretty cool way to make a living. Uh, Peter, by the way, I, I don't know if you've ever even considered this, most people during that time, very poor, and especially living in, in that area of the Galilee, they were very poor people. Peter happened to fall on the other side of it because there is a scripture that said Peter owned two boats, not one, but two boats. Most people didn't own boats. There would have been a central owner who would have then leased them back, and most people would have been a sustenance type of survival. You get enough fish to sell to pay for your boat, and you just keep going day by day by day. Peter happens to be a guy that owns two different boats, probably fairly successful. So Jesus walking up to Peter and saying to Peter, hey, follow me, and I'll teach you how to be a fisher of men. That had to be, he's speaking the language to a person who would have got, you're going to teach me how to fish for bigger things? I'm in. 
And off he goes. And I love that right there. So Peter joins Jesus, follows after Jesus. And Peter, I, I think Peter was probably the guy in the crowd where there would have been always some form of excitement around him. Either what he was saying or what he was doing. Right or wrong, he was always sure. Think about it for a second and he'll, yeah. He just always was sure about what he was doing. So when they're on the boat and the storm comes up and Jesus walks out to them on the water, the Bible says that all the disciples are afraid. They're all cowering in the boat. It doesn't actually mean words. When they see Jesus, here's what the Bible says, they shrieked. It doesn't say yell, which by the way, if I was writing it, I would have put we all yelled when we saw what we thought was a ghost. It says they shrieked which is not a very manly thing to do, by the way, just in case you were wondering. And so Peter, though, of all the men in the boat, Peter's the only one who says, if it's really you, Jesus, tell me to come out of the boat to you. Jesus, okay, come on, Peter. And Peter gets out of the boat. You remember the great story? He walks on the water. I don't know how many steps for sure, but the Bible says when he looked around at the storm, the wind and the waves, and all of the storm, he began to sink, and Jesus reaches out his hand, grabs Peter, lifts him up. Oh, you of little faith. Uh, but here's what I would say. He was the only one who got wet. He was the only one in the world who had the same experience as Jesus. Even if he failed at it, he still got out of the boat. The rest were cowards. The rest wouldn't do it. So I admire him, right or wrong, I admire him for his fire. I admire him for his courage. I admire him because he was willing to do what it took. I like that. Like people like. I like people you have to hold back rather than constantly light a fire under. You know what I mean? I just, I, that's, I like that type of a person right there. Peter seemed to be that kind of a guy. Always, always with the question, always the one in the Bible who, who, who has the, the, the mouth that's sort of speaking out over Jesus. Jesus tells him, listen, this is what's going to happen to me. I have to give my life. Uh, it, it's, I mean, he spells it out. And people, Peter, absolutely not. That is not what you can do, Jesus. And Jesus turns to Peter, uh, devastating words. Get behind me, devil. Now, I mean, how many would you, would you feel good about that? And yet Peter seems to recover quickly. All right. <laughs> I, just, I just like the personality. So on the night of Jesus' last earthly, earthly night, the Last Supper, and, and Christ institutes the Last Supper. It's the Passover. We just did this at Passover, and uh, he, he's... he's He's talking to the disciples about what needs to be, and I've been your servant, now you need to serve people. It's a great message. And then, here's what the Bible says, that as Jesus got done teaching them about serving and and about how he operated and what it needs to look like in the kingdom, the Bible says an argument broke out amongst the disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine? Jesus teaches, you all need to be servants. Just like I'm serving you, you need to serve. And five minutes later, an argument breaks out about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And apparently, Peter must have been, I am going to be greatest. And Jesus turns to him and, you know, begins to speak to Peter about this. And Peter tells him, I am ready to go unto death with you. And then Jesus just simply tells Peter, bottom line is, um, Peter, here's what's going to happen. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three separate times. You would think Peter would have asked him questions about that. How could this be? But again, I think Peter's, I, I would never do that. I think his brain probably just went a little slower than his mouth. And I would never do that. And then you know the story. Right after the supper, they head across to the Kidron Valley. 
They're on the Mount of Olives. Judas comes, betrays Jesus with a kiss. The disciples scatter, including Peter. When they end up bringing Peter or to Jesus back to Caiaphas' house, Peter's hanging out in the courtyard close by so that he can see but not be connected. And three separate times, people say to him, you're one of his disciples. You, you I know you. I know, I even, I can hear it in your dialect. You're from, you're, you're from the town where he did ministry at. And I've seen you with him and I know you serve him. He's your Lord. And every time, Peter would say, absolutely not. I don't know who he is. Never seen him before. In fact, uh, one of the Gospels says that he curses. He cursed at the girl who accused him in order to shut her up quickly. Cursed at her. And on the third time, here's what the Bible says. Immediately, a rooster crowed, and Jesus looked over at Peter, and Peter's eyes met Jesus. Can you imagine the devastation that that must have brought on him? No words had to be spoken. He just looked at him, and it happened just like he said. And here's what the Bible says. Peter left, and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. It's a sad story, but I'm glad it didn't end there. So I want to take Peter's story real quick. I mean, a devastating betrayal. Something that could have marked him for the rest. Of, something that could have made him the pariah and the outcast amongst his friends. Would you agree? Something that could have been so... <laughs> The, the scarlet letter on Peter. But let me tell you three things that I think Peter did right in his failure. And the first one just simply is this. His heart was broken. His heart was broken. So Luke 22, 61 and 62 recounts the exact words of a story that I just tried to tell you. It says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And once that happened, Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. I love the wording here because it describes not a person who simply bows up. It doesn't describe a person who feels vindicated or justified in what they've done. It describes a person who exposed in their sin and exposed in their failure and exposed, caught in their lie. Caught red-handed. Someone who has done something that is just so wrong, it's blatantly wrong. Instead of defending it, instead of bowing up, his heart is instantly broken. And let me talk to you very quickly about the necessity, the way that I wrote it, the necessity and the beauty of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Do you know there is a difference between the sorrow that you can experience in this world? There's godly sorrow... And there's worldly sorrow. So let me show you scripture here real quickly, and then I'll tell you the difference between the two. Pull this up. 2 Corinthians 7:10. So Paul writes this to a church, and this is what he says: the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So here, let me describe the two to you. There's the person who gets caught in the thing, red-handed, in their sin. It's exposed. It's, it's all the world can see it. That person has two choices at that point. They can be sorry they got caught, which is worldly sorrow. You're sorry that you got exposed. You're sorry that people know. You're actually angry. It's probably a better word. I got caught, and I don't like to be caught. But rather than 
bring it to a point where your heart is broken on it. You simply are just sorry that you got caught, and it doesn't bring real repentance. So here's what happens to that person. Rather than change, they'll repeat a pattern for the rest of their life. And whether it be that same thing or not, that thing marks them because they never get by that thing. It becomes the thing that they're known for, the thing that they're marked by, the thing that they are remembered for for the rest of their life. But the difference between that kind of sorrow and godly sorrow, godly sorrow, if you let godly sorrow have its full work, and remember these words right here, godly sorrow takes time. Look at me. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow can happen in 15 seconds. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you know about this. I'm sorry it's exposed. But godly sorrow is a process in a person's heart that brings them a full 180 degrees from where they were going to where God wants them to go. That kind of sorrow, godly sorrow, leads from what you're doing to the place that God wants you doing. That makes sense? And I think what we live with today, listen to me, and I think we do it in church a whole lot, is we just quickly go over something, just say you're sorry and let's move on. And I would submit to you, that that's not the full repentance that God wants to have happen in the situation. Now, someone's like, but God wants me to suffer? No. God wants to take your heart and put it in the right place so you can move beyond the thing that's trapping you, beyond the thing that the devil got you with, beyond the thing that's exposed you for the position that you're in. Does that make sense? So God's not like, I want you to suffer. I want you to pay the price. I want you to feel bad. God doesn't want you to feel bad. Here's what he wants you to feel. He wants you to feel godly sorrow why would I do this? Not how could I do it. Why would I do it? Because the why is more important than the how. Why did you do that? Where's your heart at? What happened inside of you that put you in that position in the first place? And the funny thing about it is, it takes a while to get to that position, and it takes a little while for God to bring you back out of that position in your heart. Hear me on this. Your heart can break instantly, but the work of sorrow and repentance is a timing issue. There's a beauty and a necessity to godly sorrow. Listen, as a parent, if you're raising children, you know this is true. When a kid messes up, it's never good to just simply say, it's okay, go on, honey. If they mess up, there's a point where a kid needs to experience repentance, and repentance with tears was one of the things I looked for in my children to see whether or not they really understood what was going on. Do you hear me? Repentance with tears. Tears, some people can fake them, but you know when a person's in that position where their heart is broken. When a heart is broken, let God restore a broken heart. When my children raising them, when I would discipline them, when I would have to correct them, and I think it only happened once with you, Amy, maybe, maybe twice in your whole life. <laughs> Daily. Oh, uh, Katie. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Your oldest always gets the brunt of your lack of parenting skills, don't they? I would always, always, when I saw repentance in my children, I would grab them and I would pull them to me and then I would restore them fully. To restore without repentance leads you right back down the same road again. I don't know if you understood what I just said. But that's today where people are making a critical mistake. We want people to feel good about themselves which in a certain light is right, but if you make them feel good about their sin, make it okay, make it palatable, you're leaving them with less than what God wants them to have in their life. Does it make sense? Hmm. 
if you find yourself in a situation, look, I'm teaching this not to step on anybody. The last thing in my heart would be to do that. Instead, I would say this. If you sit out there and on the outside, no one knows, but on the inside, I'm talking to you, then hear me right now. Hear what I'm going to say. God's not disappointed in you. You don't discourage him, but here's what he wants you to do. He wants your heart broken over the thing that caused you in the situation you're in right now so that he can heal you from it. Repentance is restoration. Worldly sorrow will only lead to death. It will not get you in the position you need to be in. Let me give you the second thing I think Peter did right. He didn't disappear. He didn't disappear. So John chapter 2 is John's version of the events that happened with the disciples. So this happens a little bit later after. This is, this is after Peter has done what he's done. It's after Jesus is resurrected. Uh, so this is John uh, uh, 21, 1 through 2. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. The first one, tell me his name. Let's try that one more time, and I'll count to three so you'll know it's time to answer. What's the first one there? One, two, three. Simon Peter. I, listen, you might think to yourself, this is just simply the way that they wrote it down. I think they wrote it with him first to speak to the fact this guy could have quit and run away and hid. But he's the first one named in this situation right there, and I admire that about him. So this is after Jesus is resurrected, but before he's ascended. So later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two other disciples. So seven of the disciples are right there right then. Let me just explain this to you. Jesus has not addressed Peter yet in what's happened. In fact, I'll point this out in just a second. Jesus appears to Peter three times before he addresses what happened to Peter. Can you imagine how awkward it must have been for Peter? What do you do? What do you say? Unless Jesus opens the door, what can, what can you... I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Some things can't be taken back. They just have to be dealt with with what they are. Here in the situation, Peter, instead of running away and hiding, disappearing, freaking out, Peter shows up, man. He's right back in there. I think his real character comes out in this right here. He didn't disappear. Here's my thought. The hardest thing in the world to overcome when you blow it is the fight or flight mechanism that's triggered in you. When you blow it, there are two responses. Actually, I'll give you a third option. But the two we see in the world, here's number one, people run away. And I would say to you today, here's, we deal with this. When people come into conflict in church, it's easier to run away than it is to have to work your way through it. And if you operate it in your family that way, and maybe some of us have, then all you have is fractures in your life. And we are called a family, and as tough as family is, you're not supposed to abandon your family. You've got to work things out. The hardest thing in the world to overcome is that first option of, I just want to run away. I just want to hit the road. Does it happen to you? Does me. First thing I think. Then the second one is, you want to fight. You know what? I'm justified in this. You don't understand. And so you want to, you want to go at it. So the fighter, those are the two hardest things to have to overcome. You've got to control yourself. I'll give you the third option. Here's the third option. Humility. It's called humility. And humility simply is the option of, I was wrong, 
I'm going to hang around here with the hopes that there'll be a reconciliation. How about this? As a believer, you have nothing to run away to anyway. This is it, man. We came out of the things. We can't go back to them. Love that. Love the truth of this. He just simply didn't disappear. And I would say to you, if you find yourself in a situation where, man, you just, it's, it's the ultimate. I've blown it. Epic fail. And I don't know what to do. Repent and don't run away. Maybe you have to put up with some comments. And maybe you have to figure out how to have, and maybe it's awkward. And maybe it's weird. Wow, no one ever has a weird situation. Wow, <laughs> folks, maybe it is. Maybe it's the tougher thing to do. Do it anyway. Do it because it's the right thing to do. I'll just give you the last one then. So his heart was broken. He didn't disappear. The third one, he just simply, in all that he had and all that had happened, he went to Jesus, man. And I love that about Peter. John 21, okay? John 21. So we just read 21, 1 through 2. This is verse 7. Then the disciple, Jesus loved. That's John. And what gospel is this? That's how John referred to himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Love that. <laughs> so the disciple, whom, not the one who betrayed Jesus, by the way. That's the other guy. I'm the one he loved. The disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, <laughs> It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... He put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. He jumped into the water, and he headed to shore. Now, I just mentioned this to you. This is the third time Jesus has shown up after the resurrection, but before the ascension. The third time, the first two times, he hadn't said a word to Peter. He didn't say to Peter, hey, you don't believe? Come and touch. He didn't say to Peter, listen, I get it. Tough night for everybody. Is that too disrespectful? Come on! <laughs> It's too soon, right? Come on! <laughs> Come on. You know, I'm a funnier guy than you guys are laughing right now. I really am. I have a great sense of humor. That's why my wife married me. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, this is the third time Jesus shows up, hadn't said anything to Peter, but this time it's a different situation. They're fishing from shore. They look back to the shore and John spots him first. It's Jesus. So he turns to Peter. Why Peter? I bet they had been talking about the fact of how's this ever going to get put right. I bet Peter wept in front of them. And I bet his heart was broken for all that time between the cross and between Jesus finally talking. I bet every day he regretted what he did. You think maybe? So the first thing they do is turn to him and they tell Peter, look, it's Jesus. And here's what Peter did, just like Peter. Just quickly put his shirt on and dive in the water to go to Jesus. This time, he wasn't going to let Jesus get away without saying to him what it needed to be said. Now, let me tell you what Jesus always did right. Like, if, what, what's, what's the answer to that question? Everything. <laughs> but in this case, let me tell you what Jesus had done prior to all of this happening that I think was just so brilliant. What a leader Jesus was. And if we could learn to do this for people, look at the brilliance of this right here. On the night he's betrayed, at the Last Supper, this is what Jesus says to Peter from Luke's version of the events. This is before Peter's denied Jesus, 
before he's been arrested. This is still at the Last Supper. Jesus tells him, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, I want you to go and strengthen your brother. So here's what Jesus is doing. Before Peter ever does any of these things wrong, he tells him, I've prayed for you, and once it's all put back together between us, go and strengthen other people who have made the same mistake that you have. How brilliant of a leader is that to prepare for the fact that people are going to fail, and when you do, here's the way back. And if I could do anything for any one of you right now that are struggling with this, I would tell you there's a path back. Run to Jesus, man. He does not stand like this. He doesn't stand like this or like this. It's like this. He's made the way possible for you to find your way back. And what the enemy would do is isolate you in that place where you've made a mistake and remind you every moment of your life what a failure you are. Stop listening to it. The devil's a liar. And he's only empowered when we believe the lie. Stop it. Because I believe this is in here. It's in the Bible for this reason. We all find ourselves at places where we're distant from Jesus because of sin at times. The answer to that is run to him. Go to him. Go. Do what you need to do and go to him. I plead with you. Don't live your life as an exile. Don't live your life as a person who's marked a pariah don't let a failure be the defining moment of your life let the fact that God restores you be the thing that you remember and are remembered for Mm. I guess I come to the end of it then just simply with this I realize many will hear it and not feel right now like I, I have a equal in my life I realize maybe it's for the few Maybe for the one. I don't know. But I know the compassion that I felt in my heart when I wrote the message. I know it was from the Holy Spirit. I know it was from the Holy Spirit. And I know that God, just like with Peter, would put his hand out to you. And invite you to fellowship. And not to live your life as an exile somewhere way away from God. He would pull you right back to himself, man. A broken heart, godly sorrow, run to Jesus. So three things, that's what you do right. Father, we love you. I want to give you the opportunity right now just to speak to our hearts and to do what you need to do in our lives. Father, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to us. We began our whole weekend talking about God's faithfulness, God's mercy and God's grace extending itself in a new way to his people. God, that's what I would ask for right now, that you would be merciful, gracious, full of life, and offering, Lord God, the opportunity. Lord, there may be some work that needs to be done. You don't offer some sloppy restoration. True restoration is done by doing the right things. And Father, as this message would, would minister in a person's life, I just ask, God, speak to them about the steps necessary, about the fact of repentance from sin, godly sorrow, the necessity of it, the beauty of it. A broken heart, Father God, you don't push it away. 
You actually draw near to the brokenhearted. That's what the Bible says. Pride keeps us at a distance from you. But a person in humility, a person in brokenness, has the opportunity to experience God in a way like never before. And ultimately, God, running to you. Coming to you when the offer is there, the opportunity. Look, there's Jesus. Run to him. He won't turn us away. He won't reject. He won't say, ah, it's been too many times. God, you offer mercy. And I pray that for this group of people. I pray that, Lord, at every one of our campuses. I pray, Lord, wherever someone hears this message, if it's applicable right there in their life, let them experience your mercy and your grace. God, as never before. Lord, thank you for doing that for us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, for our other campuses, our campus pastors are going to come right now and take the service for me, and they're going to close it out the way that they see fit.